Okay, so good morning, everybody. So we're um, still at the beginning of the meditation chapter uh, from Shanti Deva's Guide to Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And uh, you can see of 10 chapters, this is the eighth chapter. Okay, it's not the first chapter. <laughs> okay, so there's something telling in the order. Yeah, in other words, for your meditation to be successful, and especially if you want to develop single-pointedness, there has to be a lot of preparation first in your practice. Yeah, and what I've noticed a lot in the West is people want to immediately sit down and develop single-pointedness um, without having sometimes even heard the teachings on how to develop it without knowing what the conducive circumstances are for developing it and uh, thinking that, okay, I can go to work, have my regular old life, go here and there, do this and that, and at the same time gain single-pointed in, uh, concentration in a month or two. Good luck. Okay, <laughs> but a lot of people have that kind of uh, wish, you know, because we think meditation means only concentration. Yeah, it, it, from in a Buddhist context, concentration is a very important element. But like I said, you have to build up your practice so that when you do this kind of meditation, you can be successful. Otherwise, what you manage to do is go round and around in your own head about all your own ideas and your afflictions and what happened in the past and what you want to happen in the future. And uh, you have no idea about how to control your mind because you haven't studied and practiced the the fundamental teachings and the, and the thought training teachings. Yeah. So we do meditation along with our practice from the get-go. Yeah. But I, and it's fine to do some concentration practice, but we really need uh, to get a very good grounding in the Buddhist worldview. We need to learn the thought training teachings, how to control our mind a little bit. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, it's, it's really, our mind is all over the place. Yeah. If you've had any experience, like sitting and trying to focus on your breath for five minutes. Yeah. Anybody can do that without any distraction, like falling asleep or going to la la land or, you know, it's hard. So this is why we need the preparation. And also, single-pointedness is not the ultimate goal of the practice. Yeah, what we are, the two main qualities we want to develop are uh, bodhicitta, the aspiration for full awakening that is based on impartial compassion for each and every sentient being, and the wisdom realizing emptiness. And concentration is a tool to uh, gain those, insi those insights and to integrate them into our mind. Okay? So 
if you just have the concentration, but there's no meditation on bodhicitta, on emptiness, even on renunciation of samsara, then your practice isn't even a Buddhist practice. Because for concentration or any practice to be done, it has to be done with refuge in the three jewels. If you don't know what the three jewels are and why, what their qualities are and why take refuge in them, then, you know, many spiritual traditions have concentration practices and their practitioners gain those. Uh, but they still don't have the path to liberation. They may get reborn in heavenly realms, but uh, they're missing the, the crucial elements for to be liberated from samsara, let alone to attain full awakening. Okay? So this is why it's really important to have an overall view of how the path works and to, you know, integrate the different things into our own mind without having uh, this kind of idealistic mind, which uh, we'll come to a, a, a little bit here. So there's some verses in here that sound, well, we'll I won't tell you. Well, I'll tell you when we get to them, you know, how they sound and what they really mean. Okay. So we'll start with... Uh, Imagining the merit field and the space in front, the Buddha surrounded by all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, all the holy beings, ourselves surrounded by all sentient beings, including the people we can't stand, the people we're afraid of, everybody who we want to exclude. In this kind of practice, we do not exclude anyone. Every sentient being is worthy of respect. Every sentient being has the potential to attain full awakening. So let's cultivate our motivation and initially when we think of having impartial compassion for all living beings, our mind may reject that idea thinking that some beings are more worthy of compassion than others. that some beings are more virtuous than others. So to cultivate compassion that is shared impartially with each and every living being, we have to see living beings from a, uh, not from our usual perspective. Because our usual perspective is judging them in terms of how they relate to me, if they help me or harm me or don't affect me at all. 
And when we begin to categorize people as friends, enemies, and strangers based on how they treat me, the very important me, then it's, uh, we can't really see who they are. We're just seeing them through the periscope of what we consider to be the center of the universe ourselves. But when we broaden our scope, we see that everybody has the potential to become a Buddha, even though they may have different accumulations of virtue and non-virtue at this moment, the potential to become a Buddha is shared equally, as is the wish for happiness and to avoid misery. So it's important to learn how to look at sentient beings in a different way than our usual way, which is to categorize them into friend, enemy, and stranger based on whether they please me, displease me, or don't influence me. And instead to look beyond that and to see their potential, which is just like ours, and their wish for happiness and not suffering, which is just like ours. So spend a few minutes contemplating that, and then from that, cultivate compassion, wishing all beings to be free of dukkha, of unfavorable conditions, and then is aspiring to become a Buddha in order to lead them to full awakening. So um, last week, uh, Shantideva, who is talking from the first person and how he practices, how he sees things, is uh, last week he was talking about relationships with what he calls childish beings. Okay, uh, that means us. Yeah, you might not think of yourself as a child as being, what, I'm an adult, I have an education, I know what I'm doing, I can think clearly and make good decisions. Oh, yeah? Uh, you know, I'm always reasonable, I never fly off the handle, 
I am always fair. Yeah, that's our, our view of ourselves, right? Okay. Other beings, especially the ones we don't care for very much, those ones are very partial, they're overly emotional, they're, um, they're fickle, they change their mind, they want something, then the next day they don't want it, they like you, then they don't like you, you know, th- those beings, yeah. So, uh, uh, but, but my friends and relatives, they're like me, the rational, clear-thinking, fair people. Right, except for the relatives I don't like, who are like those other people who are just obnoxious. Okay, so um, uh, actually, the term childish beings, sorry, uh, refers to all of us too, in the sense that, uh, yeah, we are fickle, we are unfair, we are partial, we change our mind all the time. Yeah, we say, please, may I have some advice? And then we don't listen. Um, yeah, so it's, it's talking about us too. But as Dharma practice practitioners, yeah, in, when you get to chapter eight and you're really becoming serious in terms of your meditation, uh, you have to overcome these kind of views of other living beings. Because as long as we react with attachment and aversion to childish beings, you know, according to what they say and what they do and what they think about us, uh, then our own minds are not free. Our own minds are just as messed up as we think theirs are. Okay? Because when they say nice things to us, we are delighted. And we think those people are wonderful. And when they say mean things to us, we are unhappy, dismissive, critical of them, and think that they're just dum-dums. Okay? Uh, So uh, how are we different from them? Not so much. So, but here in this chapter, uh, we're not only looking at it in terms of our own weaknesses, but here are weaknesses in being attached to the immature childish people. Okay. Uh, so you may say, well, what, what do you mean our weaknesses in being attached to them? Well, for example, why do we feel so happy when people praise us? Yeah, why? What is a good reason for feeling happy when people praise us? I know there's many reasons, but what's a good one? (laughs) And what's a good reason for being displeased when people criticize us? Yeah, we say, uh, what, what, usually how we answer these questions. What's a good reason to be attached? Because what they say is true. Uh, what is a good reason to, to be mad when they criticize me? Because they're idiots. They don't know what they're talking about. 
Okay, now those of you who have studied how to make syllogisms, you know, with a subject and a, uh, a predicate and a reason, see if you can make a good syllogism to prove why your attachment to people who praise you and why your aversion to people who criticize you is reasonable. Yeah. See if you can come up with a good reason for that. Okay. So work on this. Uh, Yeah. And uh, let's share some of these reasons next time. Yeah. We did some of this work before, but it's good to go through it again because we very easily forget how to do proper syllogisms, and especially when it comes to topics like this. Okay, so just to review, we'll we'll actually start on verse 14, but I want to read a few of the ones before it to, uh, how to say, get us in the mood. Okay, so here's what Shantidev is saying about, you know, the people we're attached to, just ordinary childish people. One moment they are friends, and in the next they become enemies. Since they become angry, even in joyful situations, it is difficult to please ordinary people. True or false? Yeah. It's difficult to please them. Yeah. Because they're they're friends, then they're enemies. Fickle minds, yo-yo minds. They are angry when something of benefit is said, and they also turn me away from what is beneficial. If I do not listen to what they say, they become angry and hence proceed to lower realms. Okay, we try and say something to help them. They get angry. Um, We want to do something virtuous. They try and discourage us. Yeah. And if we don't do what they want us to do, then they guilt trip us. Yeah. Not because they mean any harm. They think they're putting forth a good argument about how we should live our lives. But the upshot of that is that uh, conforming to their wishes takes us away from the Dharma and takes us away from virtuous activities. So you have to, to really understand these verses, you have to look at your own life. These are not theoretical things. We have to look at how we relate to other people and how, uh, how we compromise our own values and such in order to please them, in order to fit in, in order to belong, yeah, in order to be liked. Because huh? this is very, it's very strong in us. They are envious of superiors, competitive with equals, arrogant towards inferiors, conceited when praised, and if anything unpleasant is said, they become angry. Never is any benefit derived from the childish. Okay, so if you just read the verse like this, it. Our ordinary mind says, therefore, I hate everybody else. 
Yeah, they take me away from the Dharma. They're no good. They're terrible. I hate them. Uh, no, that's not the what Shantideva is trying to get us to. Yeah, because he's just spent the first uh, seven chapters telling us about their kindness and how we should cherish sentient beings. So he's not now uh, changing his mind and, and wanting to make us head, hate them. What he's doing is saying, if you want to go deep in your practice, yeah, then you have to do away with the attachment for childish beings who have different values and different ways of seeing the world because they're only thinking of this life. And they're thinking, uh, they think through the periscopes of their me, I, my, and mine, okay? Not of the big picture. Through associating with the childish, there will certainly ensue unwholesomeness, such as praising myself, belittling others, and discussing the joys of cyclic existence. So we can spend a long time discussing the joys of cyclic existence, you know. That's, yeah, that's what's called uh, hanging out and connecting with our friends. Yeah, either discussing the joys of cyclic existence or complaining about other living beings. Yeah, those are the two ways we connect with other people. And what Shantideva is saying is, you know, if those are your only two ways to connect with other people is through thinking that, that you're so wonderful and being attached to others who agree with that and hating the people who criticize you, then kind of, what are you doing in your Dharma practice? Yeah. Okay, so now we're at verse 14. Devoting myself to others in this way will bring about nothing but misfortune because they will not benefit me and I shall not benefit them. Here we go. Wait a minute. But my family, yeah? I love those people. They've supported me since I was born. My friends I really care about. Yeah? Why is connection with them going to bring home... You know, nothing but misfortune. And what are you saying? They will not benefit me. They've benefited me my whole life. You just spent this part of the book telling me that. <laughs> yeah. And I shall not benefit them. But I'm, I'm, I'm practicing bodhicitta. I will benefit them. Now, what in the world is Shantideva saying here? Okay. What he's saying is, yeah, if we accord with the values and wishes of people who think only of this life, who do not think of their actions as having an ethical dimension, who do not think of the results of their actions before they do them, be those the results in this life or the results in future lives, in other words, if we only do what feels good now, and if we only try to accord with other living beings who are afflicted living beings, they are not Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, yeah, so they don't have the ability to lead us on the path, 
Yeah, they are the field of compassion. They are not the field of merit. There's the difference. The field, the merit field, are beings who are full of realizations and merit and can lead us on the path. The field of compassion are those who need our compassion and our help. We shouldn't confuse these two. Okay. Yeah. The field of merit we take refuge in, we learn from. The field of compassion are those that we practice with in, in terms of cultivating our, uh, our empathy, our compassion, and so on. Okay. So they won't benefit me. Why? Because they don't, they don't have the Dharma view. They want me to be happy in this life, and they want me also to benefit them in the way they want to be benefited. And uh, they will let me know, and they, you know, and say all sorts of things to me to talk me into doing things that are not Dharma. And I, you know, if I don't, if I'm not clear in my own mind, I will just go along with it. Yeah. So uh, they won't benefit me if that happens. My benef- my dharma practice is not getting benefited, and I can't benefit them because at the end of the day, I'm just as fickle and emotional and you know such as they are. Okay. When I say emotional here, I don't mean emotions are bad. There are definitely good emotions that we want to cultivate. When I say emotional like this, I mean people who are happy one minute and unhappy the next, and they like something one minute and hate it the next, that kind of thing. Yeah, Like us. Yeah? Are you like that? Oh, no. We're reasonable, rational. Yeah. I understand. Okay. Verse 15. I should flee far away from childish people. When they are encountered, though, I should please them by being happy. I should behave well merely out of courtesy, but not become greatly familiar. Now, when he says in the first line, I should flee far away from childish people, we get the image of, you know, okay, we see our old friends or we see a family member and we go, hey, you're a monster, and we run away. I'm fleeing from childish people. You are terrible and you're going to destroy me. No, that's not what, what Shantideva is aiming at, okay? What he's talking about is when we have wisdom and can properly assess situations, we see that hanging out with, uh, with childish people and trying to please them and trying to benefit them, it takes a lot of energy and doesn't always have much result. Yeah. And so if you're trying to deepen your meditation practice, you don't need to have a lot of worldly relationships with these people because it takes a lot of time and because, you know, they're always asking you to do something and guilt-tripping you if you don't want to do it and, and so on and so forth, okay? 
So he's, he's not saying these people are awful. He's saying in the context of wanting to really follow the Dharma path, yeah, these should, worldly people should not be your objects of refuge. Yeah, they should not be the ones that we turn to for comfort and support and so on and so forth. Yeah. And so you can see this involves a total uh, flip or a total reconfiguration of who we are close to and how we relate to people. But again, it doesn't mean that we look at our family and friends and just go, you're awful people, get me away from you. No, because in the next sentence he says, when they are encountered, though, I should please them by being happy. I should behave well merely out of courtesy, but not become greatly familiar. Okay, so when we encounter them, because we live in a world full of childish beings, yeah, then um, we please them by being cheerful, by being happy, okay, but, but we're doing it out of courtesy, out of consideration for them, not because we want to have this close, entangled, emotional relationship where they love us and we love them and all this kind of stuff going on. You know what I mean by these kind? Yeah? Have you ever had these kind of relationships? They're just, they're sticky. They're sticky. There's no space. Yeah, they want you to be a certain way. You want them to be a certain way. They aren't what you want them to be. You aren't what they want them to be. But we're all trying to make each other into into what the other one wants them to be without realizing that the whole problem is our own minds, not other people. Okay? So, uh, yeah, (laughs) that's why we should not get involved in this kind of thing. But we're polite, yeah, we're fair, we chat with them. It doesn't mean you don't talk with them. You chat with them. You can be interested in their life, you know, and especially people from different backgrounds, people who have different experiences than we do, who think different than us. It's very helpful to, you know, learn about how they think and why they think that way. But we do that because, uh, you know, learning like that really uh, enhances our ability to have compassion for them, not because we want to get into this kind of relationship. And I'm not just talking about romantic relationships, which are double this, okay? But just regular, sometimes friendships where, you know, it's just so like, Yeah. Entangled? Is that? But this expresses it better. You know, go like this for a while and you feel how uncomfortable it is. And it's like, well, that's what the relationships turn out to be. Okay. So we don't become greatly familiar with them. They are not our best friends. Yeah. They're not the people who are our refuge objects. They're not the people that we turn to for encouragement in the Dharma. Yeah. If you need help 
uh, renewing your passport and they know how, sure, ask them to help you. But, you know, in terms of your Dharma practice and how to reduce your attachment and anger, they're, they're not going to know how to help in that way. Okay, 16. This verse is very nice. In the same way as a bee takes honey from a flower, I should take merely what is necessary for the practice of Dharma, but remain unfamiliar as though I had never seen them before. Okay, now initially, again, this gives us the impression. Okay, I take only what's necessary for my Dharma practice. You give me food, you give me clothing and uh, medicine and uh, housing, and I accept all of that. But after that, um, I am unfamiliar and I don't care anything about you. No. Again, that is not what Shantideva is trying to do. Yeah, that's what our self-centered mind does. Okay, but that's not what Shantideva is teaching. So in, in the Pratimoksha Sutra, there's, uh, anybody have a copy of that verse? It talks about being like a bee when we go into town we take only like yeah what is necessary and so it's at the end of the pratimoksha that we recite every two weeks unless anybody have it memorized yeah you have it here just as a bee feeding on flowers extracts only their nectar without spoiling their color or fragrance so Bhikshuni entering a city or village is mindful only of her own behavior to see if it is correct and does not interfere in others' affairs or inspect what they do or not, not do. No. This is the Vinaya of Tathagata Krakachananda, the Arhat, the fully awakened one. Yeah. Okay. So a bee goes around, takes only the nectar. Yeah. The bee doesn't... Uh, what's the other bee doing over there? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you're on a pink flower. Uh, you didn't ask my permission to get the nectar from that pink flower, and that pink flower is mine. So get out of there, other bee. You know, the bees just mind. Basically, it's mind your own business. And if you're going to look at somebody's behavior, instead of judging everybody else's behavior, um, evaluate your own behavior and correct it if it's not the way you want it to be. That's the whole point of the verse. Okay, so we, we, we we're polite, we talk, we chat, we can help other people, but we don't get involved in sticky, gooey relationships with a lot of societal obligations. Why not? Because if you want to go do strict retreat, yeah, it's going to be hard if you're receiving a lot of dinner invitations and wedding invitations and, you know, bar mitzvah invitations and everything else, you know. And if your, your family's calling you and telling you all the, all the family problems and wants you to get involved in solving the family problems. And if your old friends are calling you with great business deals that are going to come through and make you a million, um, you know, how are you going to do your meditation? Yeah. You're going to be on your phone and on email all day long. 
Yeah. And then your mind's going to be distracted with, well, should I do this business deal or that one? And oh dear, you know, the family is not harmonious. I've got to talk to this one. I've got to talk to that one. I've got to talk to the other one. And then you, you spend all day on the phone trying to tell them to get along. And they all go like this to you. Like, you don't know what they said to me. So, you know, you're just saying nice things about them, but you don't know how they treated me. <laughs> okay. So it's going to be difficult to practice Dharma if you're in the middle of that, you know? Or if you have a job like that. Yeah. Whereas it's, it's like, you know, they expect you to make a lot of money for the, for the company and, and, uh, you know, you're the manager over some employees and the employees aren't doing what you want and they're rebelling or you're the employee and you're mad at the manager because they don't know what they're doing. Uh, you know, and we should have been the manager anyway. Uh, you know, how you, how are you going to sit there and empty your mind of worldly thoughts when they're just banging around in there like crazy? Because that's the senses stimuli from all of this. Okay, if you don't believe me, just try it. Well, I think most of you have tried it. But not just try it, look at your own experience and see what happens. Yeah. Okay, then verse 17. So this is, this is what we're saying. So this is shifting in here now to talk about when we are self-important before we're talking about how to, you know, childish beings now, our own self-importance and what's going to happen to us. I have much material wealth as well as honor. Yeah, and many people like me. Yeah. It's interesting. Ivana Trump just passed away. Trump's first wife. This kind of well describes her, describes him. Yeah. Many people like me. Yeah. They write about me in the tabloids. I am glamorous. Yeah. I wear furs down to the floor. Oh, look at the pictures. Yeah. Furs down to the floor. Expensive. Yeah. Diamonds flashing. I am top society. Everybody wants to know what I'm doing. Yeah. Or, okay, so that's a little bit exaggerated for those people. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't really know those people. I'm not at their class. But, yeah, we have our own way of doing that, don't we? I have much material wealth or, you know, honor. I am well-educated. I am smart. I am learned. I am near perfection. And lots of people envy me, and they think I'm fantastic. Yeah. Part of your ego like that? Yeah. When they want somebody in front of the room to speak, to educate people, to do anything, they're going to look at me. 
and I'm going to get up there, and then everybody will know who I am. Even if it's only 20 people in the room, <laughs> I'll pretend like it's 20,000, and they all know who I am. And you have lots of titles to prove it. Yeah, lots of letters after your name and whatever it is. Okay, nurturing self-importance in this way. I shall be made terrified after death. What? What? No, I am on top of the world. I have material wealth and honor and people like me. What are you saying that I shall be made terrified? Not only after death, but at the time of death. How is that possible? Yeah, when I die, the whole world is going to be crying because I'm so wonderful. And, well, maybe not the whole world, but, you know, a good chunk of people because I'm so wonderful and I'm important in their lives. And and now I'm dead and they're going to sob and miss me. Pray for my rebirth. Yeah so that I can come back and be just as bratty of a kid as I was in this life. (laughs) Okay, I shall be made terrified after death. Actually, at the time of death, too. Yeah? Why? Why would you be terrified at the time of death and afterwards? Because you don't go with that. Yeah. You don't go. Yep. So what's the point? Yep. You leave the whole thing here. And when you go, you don't take your money. You don't take your friends and family. You don't even take your body. This thing that we think is so important that we cherish and we protect. We don't even take that when we die. It stays here. Friends and relatives stay here. All the money stays here. Yeah. They may write columns about you, but it's not necessarily going to be nice things to say. Yeah. I I was reading after Ivana, you know, the, the announcement about her death. The comments people made, People were not envious of her. Well, probably the ones who didn't write those comments were. Yeah, but the ones who wrote them com- those comments were, woo! Yeah. So, you know, well, you think everybody's going to praise you after they read your obituary? Yeah. They may say nice things because that's what you're supposed to do when somebody dies. But then, what are their thoughts? Okay, so none of that, the point, the whole point is none of that is reliable happiness. None of that is support for a spiritual practice. Verse 18. So you thoroughly confused mind 
by the piling up of whatever objects you are attached to, misery a thousandfold will ensue. Yeah, so we get our identity through our possessions, through our placement in a group of people, our role in society, by, uh, you know, the size of our bank account, by how popular we are, what kind of status we have. But at the time of death, like you said, none of that comes with. So the status, the popularity, the whole identity of who we think we are and how others should treat us evaporates. Okay, Even our body, which is the source of a lot of our identity, yeah, it decays into a corpse. Okay. So by piling these things up, yeah, the things that we're attached to, misery a thousandfold will ensue. Why misery? Because we can't take any of it with us. And because we die worrying about what will happen to our money, what other people will say, how we look in our coffin, all this kind of stuff. Okay? So can you imagine, I think I've told many of you this story about um, one lady I knew when I lived in Dharamsala, and uh, her family had fled in 1959 when there was the communist takeover of Tibet, And her father uh, clearly, you know, had fled. He had some gold. um, And I don't know how much they even, they didn't have paper money in Tibet. So this kind of, you know, if you had gold, that was good. But he fled and he uh, buried it somewhere after he got to India. And when he was dying, he was trying to communicate to her and her siblings where the gold was buried. And that just kind of broke my heart, thinking that you die worrying about gold, which, you know, means nothing to you at the time you die. Yeah. So why are we so attached to it when we're alive? That's the question. Okay. Or how we envision the perfect ideal death, you know, according to society's view of the ideal death. You know, we're not the soldier dying anonymously on the war on the battlefield, filled with terror, filled with remorse. No, we're lying on a comfortable bed, clean everybody we love around us, holding our hand, saying, I love you so much. Thank you for everything you've done. Please don't die. We're going to miss you. We need you. You are special in our lives. Oh, I'm special. You know, and they're crying because they miss us. And we think that's the perfect death. Yeah, with everybody around you like that. Do you want to 
die when everybody around you is sobbing and asking you not to die and is coming to you with a revised will yeah that you had always wanted you had wanted to revise your will for the last 10 years but you never got around to it cuz you didn't think you were going to die and now they're coming to you you know with that revision and saying sign on the dotted line and you can't even lift your hand and hold a pen yeah and you can't read the paper and you don't care about that stuff anymore but they're all bugging you you know you better sign this here otherwise so and so is going to get your money yeah okay so that's why misery a thousandfold comes verse 19 hence the wise should not be attached because fear is born from attachment with a firm mind understand well that it is the nature of these things to be discarded. Okay, so it's the nature of whatever has come together to separate. That's just in the nature of things. Whatever comes together separates. You're with dear ones. Are you always going to be with them? No. Even in this life, you separate. You aren't even chained to them, are you? They go one direction in the evening, you go the other direction. Yeah. Things separate all the time. We're, we're surrounded by separation. What do we cling to? Getting everything to stick together the way I want it to. Okay? So it's the nature of things to decay. The body's going to decay. Yeah. Our relationships, we're going to separate from the people we care about. Okay. Our status, forget it. You know, that's gone. So, you know, if we understand this well, then we don't put a lot of energy into it while we're alive. Instead, we put our time and energy into transforming our mind, developing compassion, uh, developing renunciation of samsara, learning about emptiness, keeping good ethical conduct, and so on. We don't uh, get toppled by these kinds of things. Okay? But the sentence, the phrase in here, that's very important, yeah, because fear is born from attachment. Okay, if that phrase doesn't stop you, because we think attachment is love. Yeah, love and attachment are very different. Love, you want somebody to have happiness in its causes, and there's no strings attachment, you want them to have happiness in its causes because they benefit you. And there's a lot of strings attached. I love you as long as you fill in the blank. Okay? 
So again, this doesn't mean that we look at other people and we put up walls against that. Non-attachment is not about putting up walls. Okay, some of us like to put up walls. It protects us. Yeah, other people don't see us. We don't want to appear vulnerable. So we put up walls. We think that's not attachment. That is not non-attachment. Why? Because our minds still care a lot about our reputation and we don't want people to think bad about us. and We don't want to get hurt by people knowing too much about us. Okay, so we're still hooked. There's still attachment there. Yeah, and when there's attachment, then there's fear. We're afraid of losing what we have. Whether it's status, love, appreciation, reputation, relationships, money, whatever the good things are that we have, yeah, because the nature of conditions, things, is that they change and that whatever comes together separates. Then if if we put all our eggs in the basket of external objects and people, then of course we're going to be afraid if anything happens to our objects of attachment. Yeah, But if we're able to develop wisdom and compassion in our own heart, then we are not afraid of these things, okay? And we do not need to build up walls so that we protect ourselves emotionally and so that people don't know what's really going on inside of us because, you know, we're afraid of that. Yeah, when we don't have attachment, then there's a lot of freedom in the heart. We don't, you know... It's like, I don't need to cover up and make myself look good in front of people. Yeah. And if somebody's going to say, but wait a minute, in the Bodhisattva vows, it, one of them says, um, you know, if, if you have a bad reputation, you should try and repair it and not just say, well, screw you, you know. Doesn't isn't that contradictory to what you're talking about right now? No, there's different ways. If we are attached to our reputation and somebody criticizes us, we don't like that because we want them to think well of us, because we have something to gain from them thinking well of us. Okay, so we want to fix up our reputation so that we become Mr. or Ms. Popularity again, okay? With a bodhisattva, if somebody is ruining their reputation, they don't want to clarify it because of that, because they're attached to their reputation and want people to think well of them because it benefits their own ego. No, a bodhisattva's reason is to benefit sentient beings. And if you don't have a good reputation, if you know people just disparage you, then it becomes more difficult to be of benefit to them. Yeah, because they're going to look at you and you know say, "Oh, that scumbag!" You know who who voted for them, and then you can't. You know it impedes your ability to help. 
So bodhisattvas will fix up these kind of misunderstandings. But they do it to facilitate their ability to help, and they help others not with the wish for self-gain, but out of compassion. Okay, so it's different. Okay, it is the nature of these things to be discarded, to be separated from them. 20, although I may have much material wealth, be famous and well-spoken of, whatever fame and renown I have amassed has no power to accompany me after death. So we may not want worldwide fame, but in our own little group, in our own little profession or whatever it is, we want a good reputation. We want to be known as uh, thought of well. Okay? But none of that comes with us when we die. Yeah, it doesn't matter how many obits they write that are praising us to high heaven. We're dead. Yeah, we don't get to read them. We don't benefit at all. Even if we got to read them and benefited from all of that, what good does it do us? Yeah. And even in life, what good does a good, does a good reputation do us? You know? You really think about... If you think about what's important to you and what is important to you is in terms of your spiritual practice, then we see that reputation does not um, enhance our spiritual practice at all, okay, if we're attached to it. Hmm? I mean, for example, somebody may think, oh, you are this fantastic teacher, but if you're not a fantastic teacher, and people only think that, how is that beneficial? Yeah, that doesn't help you, that doesn't help them. Okay. Then uh, verse 21, if there is someone who despises me, what pleasure can I have in being praised? And if there is another who praises me, what displeasure can I have in being despised? That one hit you here? So whenever I read this verse, I think of uh, one time when I lived in the monastery in France and somebody uh, came up to my room and just said, you know, you are the worst nun ever. You don't keep your precepts well. You are lazy you you know you are not a good example for others really laid into me okay about a half an hour later somebody else came in and said you're such a good example of a nun who is really sincere in her practice and keeps good ethical conduct now if i depended on other people to tell me who i am i'm going to be crazy because this one's telling me I'm awful, and that one's telling me I'm, I'm wonderful. So if there's someone who despises me, 
yeah, this one tells me I'm a creep. How, what pleasure can I have when the other one tells me I'm wonderful? Because I know that somebody else sees my faults and, you know, may even exaggerate my faults, but definitely they see my faults and are not shy about pointing them out. So how can I have pleasure when I'm able to um, uh, make other people think that I don't have any faults and I'm really wonderful when I'm not? And if somebody else praises me, like that person over there, yeah, then why am I so unhappy when the first person told me that I'm such, you know, such a bad example and a poor practitioner? Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? Yeah. It's like if somebody tells you you're really attractive and the next person comes along and says, you're really ugly. Yeah. So why, are you, why do you feel good when somebody says you're gorgeous and the other person, you know, and why do you feel bad when the other person says you're ugly? You know, which one are you? And anyway, we're all getting old and uglier. So what's the use of pretending that we are getting more attractive? It's true, isn't it? We're all getting old and uglier. Yeah. We don't realize it for a while. But... I can't hear very well, I can't see very well, my back hurts. And what did you say? Okay, you know, it it slowly dawns on you that you're getting older and uglier. And what are you going to do about it besides have a facelift? You're still getting older and uglier. Doesn't matter, facelift or no facelift. Dye your hair or not dye your hair. Yeah. Have a purple mohawk or not have a purple mohawk. You're still getting older and uglier. Okay. Okay. And 22. This is a good verse, too. If even the conqueror you know, the Buddha is called the conqueror because he conquered the afflictions. Yeah. It's better to say victor because in Spanish, conqueror is conquistadore and nobody likes conquistadores. Okay, so even if the victor was unable to please the various inclinations of different beings, then what is the need to mention a malicious person such as I? Therefore, I should give up the intention to associate with the worldly. Okay. So even if the Buddha was unable to please the various inclinations of different beings, yeah. when you read the scriptures, especially the, the Pali scriptures, you know, um, you see the Buddha interacted with so many different kinds of people. 
And some of them just thought he was, you know, that he didn't know anything what he was talking about. People criticized the Buddha a lot. Yeah. So, but did the Buddha try and harm those people? No, he was working for their benefit. They can't see it. They couldn't see it because they had a different worldview. Yeah. And they couldn't see it because of their own self-centeredness and self-preoccupation. Okay. So even if the conqueror was unable to please all these sentient beings, what about a malicious person like me? How come I think I'm going to be able to please everybody and thus everybody's going to love me? Yeah. Am I free of malice? No. Yeah. Am I never obnoxious? <clears throat> yeah. We think, oh, I'm never obnoxious. Yeah, just step back. Look at your behavior. Huh? Well, maybe there's a couple of instances where I wasn't very nice. But those were all in the past. Yeah. In first grade, you know, when I called my friends' names, when I bullied people. Yeah. I'm not like that now. Okay, so what need is there to mention a malicious person such as me? You know, of course I'm going to get criticized. I don't even have the qualities of a Buddha. And yet the Buddha, with all of his excellent qualities, worldly people also criticize him. I mean, look at the Dalai Lama, yeah? For people who are his students, I mean, we have incredible reverence for him. To the Chinese government, he is the splitter of the homeland. He's the devil. He's the person who's trying to rip the country apart. Yeah? Does that put His Holiness in a bad mood? No. Yeah? He's not doing a tap dance to try and please the communist government. But he is courteous. Uh, but he doesn't expect them to, th to praise him. No. So therefore, I should give up the intention to associate with the worldly. Okay? Because you can never please them. Other people, you can never, ever please them. Okay? So... I was thinking about this when I was, uh, you know, preparing. I like this verse very much. And it was reminding me of a couple of things in my own life. And I tell you stories from my own life because I think when you hear stories that have happened to the living people, it, it has a different effect than when you have stories that, you know, are just made up examples, you know, if you know it really happened to somebody. Okay. So. I was, um, after Venerable Sankhya Kadro left Dorji Pommel Monastery in France, this was in the 80s when we lived there, then I became the director. And uh, people criticized me. Oh boy, did they criticize me, because everybody who joined the monastery wanted to change the rules. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what you want to do. When you first join, what do you do? 
I don't like this. I don't like that. Let's change the rule to this. Let's change the policy to that. This doesn't make sense. You expect me to follow that. Okay. So I got criticized a lot. You know, of course, I was never obnoxious. Yeah, that's taken for granted. Although maybe once, once in a while, you know, I was a little disagreeable. Uh, okay. But my feelings were hurt. Yeah. Because I was trying my best sincerely, and they were criticizing me. So, when my teachers came, you know, to give teachings there, I, re- I requested an appointment. I went in, I said, Rinpoche, you know, I'm the director and I'm really doing my best and I'm trying to help these people. And, the organization, and they criticize me for this, and they criticize me for that, and they criticize me for the other thing. And my teacher looks at me and he says, they criticize the Buddha too, what do you expect? Yeah. Okay. So do you see sometimes... You want a whole long discussion with somebody about what to do and how to work on your mind and you want to tell them the whole long story? Yeah, with me anyway. I mean, some, with other people sometimes that my teachers kind of, they're nice and coddle them and everything. But with me, what did he do? He gave me the Dharma antidote straight. He didn't say, oh, yes, I know you're trying so hard, and those people don't see it, and they're really very mean, but I think you're wonderful. That's what I wanted to hear. No, he said, they criticize the Buddha. What do you expect of them? Yeah, he gave me a one-sentence Dharma antidote that cut it. Yeah? Like after I left Italy and I went to... To talk about why there was this Sam and how mean he was to me and all the other people, how mean they were. And then Rinpoche, you know, he doesn't say, Oh, I know, you work so hard, you're really wonderful. Sam's so mean. He looked at me and said, Who's kinder to you, Sam or the Buddha? Yeah. I mean, when I look back, so many. Things, so many times when I went to talk about a problem with my teacher, they gave me a one-liner. Not a whole long discussion. They said this about me. They didn't understand that. Then they said this. They're criticizing me. Don't they know that I'm really trying so hard? No. What do you expect? Yeah. Or another time when I went, you know, apologizing or, uh, you know, because, ev- well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was apologizing because, uh, you know, uh, Rinpoche asked certain people in the morning to go do puja in his room with him. And that was like the epitome of, you know, meditating next to Rinpoche in the morning was just, wow you know, and and it helped your own practice. And I was assigned to lead a meditation course. So 
my friends got to go at four in the morning and be with Rinpoche and do puja in his room. And I had to deal with all the traveling hippies, you know, and go and try and lead some meditation with them and teach them things, you know, when they're like asking all these incredible questions. Yeah about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and what Buddhism thinks about that. And I couldn't go and do puja with Rinpoche, but my friends were always able to do that, and I wanted to do it, and I felt so left out. And it was all my fault, you see, because if I weren't so selfish and so lazy, I could go and be with Rinpoche in his room doing puja at 4 a.m., even though he hadn't invited me. But never mind. I could have gone if I had gone, you know, if he had invited me. I could have gone. But because I had to lead, you know, all the traveling hippies at 5.30 or 6 in the morning, I couldn't do both because I wouldn't sleep at night, you know. There would be no time to sleep, and, you know, I need my... I beauty sleep. Well, not beauty, but sleep. Yeah. And so I went, Rinpoche, I'm so sorry. I'm unable to go at four in the morning. You know, I know that I'm really selfish and my practice is poor. Yeah. You know, the one liner he gave to me then, he looked at me and he said, then. <laughs> yeah. We all think the teachings from our, our teachers come in beautiful words, you know, long discourses to us personally. Yeah. And no. Like, then? <laughs> oh, yeah, then what? What do I want him to do? I want absolution. I want him to say, no, you're not being lazy and selfish. Yeah, I know you have a good intention. That's what I wanted him to say. He didn't say that. Just like in all the other times, he didn't say what I wanted him to say either. But he said what I needed. Okay. Oh, so we're kind of out of time now. Okay. So one or two questions. You mentioned putting up walls to protect ourselves. And thinking that, you know, we're renounced or we're not attached. Can you give some examples of when you've seen that in other people so I can identify that within myself? You can't identify it in yourself. I think I do it, but I could use some help in seeing in exactly how that works. Okay. It's when uh, how we present ourselves, the person we pretend to be when we meet people, when we interact with people. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's more honest to, you know, uh, just kind of tell everybody all your problems and vomit all your stuff all over them. I'm not saying that. But sometimes we are 
um, very protective. We don't say certain things, yeah, because we don't want people to think badly of us, or we want them to think well. We don't want them to know certain things about us because, you know, if they have that knowledge, they may make fun of us or they may turn it against us and criticize us, even if it's innocuous things, yeah? Or, you know, that they aren't transparent. You know how in the Abbey we talk about being transparent so that you aren't afraid of saying things? Because anyway, most people can figure stuff out about you anyway. But yeah, so you, you don't say those things. Venerable Semke, you are good at describing this. Don't make a face, you know. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, you, you know how to describe this well. I'm not saying you do it, but you, ha- you pick it up in other people. Putting up, putting up walls is, um, well, transparency. And this is something that I don't know for whatever reason, you know, and sometimes I think I get a little bit ad nauseum about it, but I'm fairly transparent about what's going on on the inside of myself. And, and as, as a result of that, I can pick up when people, they're, they're afraid of their own, um, there's a fear that if you're transparent with somebody, people will think, that you've got too many, too many emotions going on, you're too afflicted, they can't trust you, um, that there's some shame around it. And I have found that one of the most, and it's not in a, um, it's not in a making people feel for you, but there's something about being transparent in a community that helps people understand where we're coming from. Each of us gets afflicted in very different ways. We have wonderful strengths and talents. But if we don't give enough information to people, then there's a whole bunch of um, people are confused. They can't connect with us. They um, misunderstand everything from our body language to our um, articulating instructions. Um, So there's something very important about sharing with people where we get stuck, where we get scared, where we feel strong. And by doing that, it really helps to increase the intimacy in a community, the trust in a community, a faith in the community. And there's no, um, and also you can, you can have some, um, humor about it. I mean, that's where all these skits, the whole, um, the personas that come out. I mean, loving lamb is a persona of mine. You know, she's just this kind of little, <laughs> she, she's got a lot of needs, you know, so she, and she's also pretty kind, you know, so um, we just have to be able to put ourselves out there. And then also it helps us to see that the more we hide ourselves, the more the bigger sense of self is there. The transparency really dismantles a lot of identity, which is where we grasp, where we hold, where we get solid, where we get inherently existent. So I found that over the years, just putting it out there (laughs) and see what happens, it really softens my sense of self, and it helps people to understand um, where I'm coming from. 
And then as a result, there's a, there's a way to connect from that place. And then you can also um, move, move and let it go. I mean, this is, this is a moving train here. This is, this stuff doesn't, you know, you don't have to sit on it. And it's a way to free ourselves from shame and fear and guilt and attachment to reputation. You know, it's a way of walls prevent us from accepting ourselves and accepting ourselves as we are and not being disappointed or afraid of that. Um, you know, it's just, it's, if we can be realistic about ourselves, then we can grow. But if we're putting up walls and trying to present a certain persona, it actually blocks us from growing. Yeah. Because it, it takes a lot of energy to keep that wall standing up straight. And it has lots of holes. And the thing is, other people see through the holes. So then we spend our time blocking all the holes uh, instead of growing. Okay. Yeah. Venerable, you speak about uh, people pleaser a lot of times. Um, people pleaser. Mm. So I, ha- I, I start to actually associate um, and also got confused about how to be kind and not people pleaser. Mm. Can you explain a little bit? Okay. Again, kindness is because our focus is on the other person and we want them to be help- happy. People pleaser is I want you to be happy so that you like me. So people pleaser, the emphasis is on what I can gain from it. Actually, caring for them is the emphasis is on what they gain from it. Okay? And people-pleasing is very difficult because, like Shanti Deva said, one time they love you and the next time they despise you. Yeah? And you think, oh, I really did the right thing. Now they're all going to like me. And they come back and they say, bleh. But I tried so hard. Okay. Okay, let's dedicate.